The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning, church. How are you today? Praise God. Week three of Advent. Super, super excited. I mean... I say that all the time, but I'm real excited about what we're getting in God's Word today. So uh, if you would, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. I'm Pastor Vince. If you don't know that, I uh, do a lot of the Bible teaching here, and that's what I'm about to do with you right now. If you're new to learning how to find the books in your Bible, you'll find Isaiah right between Song of Solomon and Jeremiah. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. we got lots, and we'd like to give you one for free. Uh, If you don't have any way in your hand right now to follow along with us, we will have the verses on the screens, okay? Uh, As as I said, I'm I'm like, I don't know, I don't know if preachers should say this, but I'm geeked about getting in these verses with you today. I'm so excited to study these because these verses, these seven verses, they are are as rich and as sweet as as I think they get. Uh, These scriptures to me, they're like like grandma's Christmas fudge. Um, it's, It's like that, you know what I'm talking about? I actually, since we brought that up, since you guys brought it up, um, I think it's important that we take a poll real quick here. Uh, there are two main types of fudge, uh, I, in my opinion. There's good old chocolate, okay, and then there's peanut butter fudge. So here's what I want you to do. I'm looking for 100% participation. If you prefer good old chocolate, okay, I want you to put both your hands in the air and hold them there for a minute. If you prefer peanut butter fudge, just one hand in the air. If you don't like fudge at all, you can keep them down. That way we really know who to pray for. Okay. All right. Now, everyone, look around. Look around at your church family. Okay? Now you know who you can trust and who you can't. Okay? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Personally, uh, as, you know, I'm going to split the middle. I like to have a piece of both in my hand so I can take a little bite of each at the same time and let it all mix together. Uh, need some good bitter coffee there as well, though, to to get it down. Now, just because I know this church, and there's a bunch of you in here, I would say, you know, David had mighty men, and they really loved David, and there's a story where David, like, he mentions water from the well at Bethlehem. He's like, oh, man, what I would do to have a drink of that water, and, and they, so these mighty men, like, cross enemy lines and do crazy stuff to go get him uh, a little bit of that water, and, and here's the thing, like, like, some of you, I know, like, you, you really love me, and you want to bless me, and I brought up fudge, and I said, I like all the fudge, That was not a secret, like, plea for you to make me fudge. Don't do that, okay? I don't need no fudge in my life, all right? Uh, I'll have to end up probably giving it away. So don't do that. I appreciate the love. Don't bring me fudge. Okay. Now, quit thinking about Christmas sweets, because all of that was just an analogy for these scriptures, okay? You with me? Let's drop that. All right. These scriptures are awesome, though. Okay. Before we read them, I want to give you some context to show you uh, just so we can frame this, but also I want to show you something really amazing that I recently noticed. I've been studying the Bible for, in serious, probably 20 years and teaching it for about 15. And I don't know, when I say this out loud, you might all go, yeah, dude, that was really obvious. I've literally never heard anybody say this. Uh, once I saw the dots connect, it seems so obvious. I'm sure someone some there, somewhere has pointed it out, but uh, I was blown away when I noticed this. Okay, so here's some things for us to remember. We're in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote this book probably in two sections at two different times, 
But both those sections were roughly around 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay, that's really important to keep in mind. As we read the stuff Isaiah wrote, try to conceptualize 700 years and how long that really is. And that's roughly how long before Jesus came on the scene, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, that he wrote this. Okay, it's a big deal. Uh, Now, what, what did I see? What did I want to show you? You guys know here at Love City Church, we're always saying that the good news about Jesus doesn't make sense unless we understand the bad news about us. And so what that means, at least in one way, is that, for example, simply telling people uh, that Jesus loves them is, is not the whole gospel, right? We must also let them know that their sin has separated them from him. But you might think, why? Why do we insist on this? Uh, and, and the answer to that is because it's a biblical pattern. Um, we see it in the way the apostles preached in uh, the book of Acts. We see it in the way that Paul structures letters like Romans and Ephesians, okay? But it's even deeper, and it goes farther back than that, and I want to show you that here, okay? So, like I said, the book of Isaiah has two pretty distinct sections. Here's where I need you to pay real close attention. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book speak primarily of God's judgment for Israel and Judah, okay? At this point, they're separated into northern and southern kingdom. They had split, all right? So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book deal primarily with God's judgment as a result of their sin. The last 27 chapters point to the hope of a coming Messiah. Okay? Now here's what I'm wondering. Did any correlation bells start to jingle in any minds when I just laid out those numbers for you? Okay? It did. When I saw it, man, I was like, what? I had to triple check. Okay? Who did, who did it? Who did math? 39 plus 27 is what? 66. How many books are in your Bible? Genesis to Revelation, 66. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. You know how many books are in the New Testament? 27. What? The first 39 books of Isaiah's, or chapters of Isaiah's book, are about God's judgment over sin. The last 27 are pointing to the hope of a Messiah that's come. Coming, right? Woo-wee, come on now. You ain't acting excited enough about that. That's cool. All right. So, uh, the, and, and, and so why is that a big deal? Well, because we know the Old Testament, is, it's a long history and account of human sin and our attempts to fix it on our own. The New Testament reveals to us the answer to our sin problem is found in Jesus Christ alone. So today we're going to read from Isaiah 9. Uh, It's in that first section, which I told you about, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book, uh, which is primarily about sin and judgment, but, man, the parallels just keep going, because just like throughout the Old Testament, here, these seven verses show us a glimpse within that broader context of the idea of of God's judgment about sin. Just like the Old Testament does this, here we're going to see a glimpse of the good news, even as the bad news is being laid out, okay? So... I don't know, that pattern's got me all, all jazzed up this morning. So anyways, I didn't even have any fudge, so this is, this is all Holy Ghost. This ain't a sugar high, I promise, okay? Amen. All right, so we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 7 of Isaiah 9, okay? Here we go. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay, so to, to catch us up and make sure we're, we're all kind of rolling together here, in week one of this series, we looked at peace with God. Broadly, right? Our whole sermon series through Advent is Prince of Peace. Week one, we looked at peace with God and how knowing who Jesus really is makes that possible. Week two, we looked at peace with ourselves and how knowing who we really are is only possible by knowing who Jesus truly is. This week, we're going to look at peace with others, which flows out of the fullness of peace with God and peace with ourselves. Okay? You guys got your pickaxe ready? We're about to dig for gold. Let's do it. Verse 1. Let me read it again. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay? So, we kind of, I feel like we got to cheat a little bit when it came to working through these verses, okay? Because the fact that we've been in the book of Mark for months now, before we took a break for Advent, it sets us up very well to understand what is going on in verse 1, okay? This gloom that Isaiah is talking about, that he references here, it's a carryover from chapter 8, where he prophesied about the Assyrian invasion of both Israel and Judah, Okay, Israel, again, being the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. But when the invasion of the Assyrians happened, they came from the north, Okay, and that's where the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali were. And, and those, that northern area, it, it suffered the most and was ravaged most completely by the Assyrians when they came in. Okay, Now, some of you might be connecting dots and saying, okay, well, hold on, Pastor Vince, are you implying that God will allow great suffering among those he loves in order to humble them so, so maybe they know they can't live without him? And what I want you to hear me say is, no, 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 not at all. I don't mean to imply that at all. It would be terribly irresponsible for me to leave it at implication. So let me say it plainly. Absolutely, God will allow hardship among his people to soften their hardened hearts, and to bring them to himself. Absolutely. For sure. Now, some of you, ooh, that was, that was a little bold. I'm not sure I like that. Because, and, and I get that. Some of you may have heard a wolf in shepherd's clothing on TV say something like, well, that's just, that's just the Old Testament, right? Because of Jesus, that's not true anymore. God, you, God wouldn't deal with us that way. Well, 
I wish those guys and gals, uh, I wish they would tell that to Paul, who specifically said that God gave him a thorn in his flesh and then told us why, to keep him humble because of the exceedingly great revelations that God had given him. And when Paul prayed three times for him to remove that thorn in the flesh, which we're not told what it is, lots of conjecture about it, but it doesn't really matter because that's missing the point. The point is, Paul said the reason for that was to keep me humble. And when I asked God to remove it, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. I wish they would tell that, those wolves in shepherd's clothing that would try to convince people because, you know, I guess they estimate sometimes, you know, happy people and glad people that that hear a happy message give more offerings. I don't know. Maybe that's some of the calculus there. But I wish they would uh, tell that to Peter as well, who wrote to all believers that we're going to suffer for a little while, but it won't compare with the eternal glory to come. (laughs) Man, hardship and suffering and struggle is baked into this cake partially because we are so foolish, stubborn, and and stiff-necked, man, because we consistently and constantly we're tempted to settle into and be happy with this plane of existence, this world. Try to scratch out a little corner of comfort for us to have what really we can only have in eternity to have it here. And God will, in his great love for us, consistently remind us, you can't have what you were made for where you're at. You're only going to have that with me. Stay hungry, my friends, right? (laughs) Amen. All right. Verse two. Here's, Here's the beauty of this verse. Let's look at it. It says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Okay, so we're, I'm, we got to get into verse 2 for me to really show you what's going on in verse 1, okay? The northern part of the promised land got it the worst from the Assyrian invasion. But Isaiah prophesies here that they will see a great light. He says that in verse 2, right? So what does that mean? Right? Now, this is, this is where all of our time over the last months in Mark should really help us uh, have a great idea of what's happening here. We've been studying Mark. We've been tracing the ministry of Jesus. So here's, here's the question I'm posing to us. Let's see, how, let's see how much good our time months in Mark is. I'm setting this up. You know, I'm, I'm landing on you pretty thick. You guys hear that? All right. A question is coming. So if you already clocked out, wake up. All right. Where did Jesus focus the bulk of his ministry? What is this light that those in, the, in, the, in this darkness, in this, this former gloom that Isaiah is talking about, what is the light? Well, where did Jesus focus the bulk of his ministry? Well, we've been seeing in the book of Mark, he focused the bulk of his ministry. I mean, there's like one little trip up through Tyre and Sidon. The rest, he's based out of Capernaum, and he's, he's always in this same area, right around what? A region that was named for a big body of water. Right Now here's where I want you to help me preach this real loud, Love City. That big body of water where Jesus did all of that ministry, healing and feeding and preaching the good news of the kingdom and calling people to repentance, that big body of water was what? The Sea of Galilee. Yes! I still want to be a pastor. Thank you, guys. The Sea of Galilee. Now, that's interesting. He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The light, the great light that these who were broken in darkness got to see was the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he lived in Nazareth, and then he launched three years of public ministry in the region of Galilee. They got to see the light of God's gospel revelation in the person and work of Christ. That is, he is the great light. Amen. Now, let's skip to verse 6 so we can see more of what this great light of Christ reveals. Then what we're going to do is going to come back to 3 through 5 to really be able to pull apart and understand what that means in regards to us having peace with one another. Okay, so will you skip down with me to verse 6? It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, when we first look at verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. It, it, it almost looks a little bit just like repetition for emphasis, and, and we're not totally sure if, if Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really knew how deep this slight word distinction was, but it really is, okay? It's not just uh, using the same word to, to kind of say the same thing two different ways or, or a similar word. We have two things happening here. We have a child being born to us and a son being given to us. And what does that show us? Well, it shows us some of the reality. It tips, it tips open and shows us the, the hand of God in the incarnation, right? Because we see a child being born to us. What does that show us? That Christ was going to come born as a human child, okay? But when it says a son will be given to us, that, that points to the eternal nature of Christ the Son always existing, right? And so when was Isaiah written? How many hundreds of years before Christ's birth? 700 years. That's a long time. And yet we see in these little minute details, God showing some of, beginning to reveal some of the mystery and the beauty of what he's going to do in sending the word to become flesh, in sending Christ, the eternal son, to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. What else does verse 6 show? It says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, we know that can't mean that Jesus, in a theocratic kind of way, is going to be the de facto head of all human governments. When we hear the word government, we tend to think of our, our human attempts at kind of, you know, establishing power structures and sorting people out throughout the world. This, this government that is being referenced here is, is the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, that the, the kingdom is going to rest. All of the promises of the kingdom rest upon the shoulders of this child that's going to be born to us, this son that's going to be given. And what we find out more about him and who he is, it says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And, and we, see, we see here where it says his name will be called. So that, that I think a lot of people, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, those are, those are names that I can call Jesus. And that's kind of the end of what they think about it. Because, you know, sometimes we're just real practical and, and straightforward in the way we look at things. But so it is that. It's completely fine and totally appropriate to call Jesus wonderful counselor and mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. But really part of what's happening here is these are, these are descriptions of his character. These are different elements of how he is light to us, right? That he's a wonderful counselor. Jesus absolutely does often and, and 
and maybe right now using other people within his body to help bring counsel into your life, but ultimately he is the wonderful counselor empowering whatever good instruction, advice, or counsel you're receiving, whatever the source is, right? He is the wonderful counselor. Mighty God. We could talk about that for a long time. It, it points us, when we talk about his might, and, and there's some that have made distinctions about, you know, again, trying to separate God the Father and God the Son and make them almost two different people in essence and nature. They'll say, oh, well, it says mighty God here, and in other places, almighty God is, is when we're talking about God the Father, but th- these, these words are used interchangeably. There's times where God the Father is referred to as mighty God as well, so that's a bunch of hogwash. But anyways... God is mighty, right? We, talk, we spent a lot of time last week talking about creation and how that should, the idea of God and the might that was exerted in creation should leave us in perpetual awe of his great strength. Uh, we should have comfort and, and peace in that. Eternal Father, right? Never, yes, a, a, a child is born to us, but that's not, that's not where it started. Jesus has always been Prince of Peace, We've been we're stomping all over that right all all through Advent. Uh, he is the Prince of Peace, and so these are these are things that we can, you know, ways we can soak ourselves in in the reality, the depth, the beauty, the power of who Christ is and what it is He brings. Verse seven just adds more to it. It piggybacks on that and and brings some really like comforting but really strong eternal language into the picture. It says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Wow. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. (laughs) Whoo, man, we need that. From then on and forevermore. Man, there will... There won't be an increase to his government, or there'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace. Let that sit on you a second. There'll be no end, what? To the increase. His might and his glory and the peace that he brings is only ever going to increase, always and forever. This is soaked in eternal language. How is that possible? How can. Forever? He's got enough in the tank in terms of peace to share that it's going to increase forever and ever and ever and never stop? What does that even mean? Where does that leave me? Safe? Real safe. Awestruck. Thankful. Worshipful, hopefully. And... And what is it, friends? (laughs) What is it that assures all of these precious promises? What who are all these precious promises dependent on? It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this. It's not the strength of men. It's not the strength of our resolve. It's the zeal of the Lord and the Lord alone that will accomplish these things. Come on. If that's not gospel woven through, I don't know what is. Amen. Now, we've, we've looked 
as much as we can, <laughs> and time allows for right at the moment, at, at the, this, this light of the revelation of Jesus and, and what is said about it here. But how does the light of that revelation, how does it affect the way we relate to one another, right? Because this week we're looking at peace with others, right? We've looked at peace with God. We looked at peace with ourselves. We're looking at peace with others, okay? And, and we got to go... Uh, we got to go back up to verse 3 to begin to understand that, okay? It says, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So how does this affect the way we relate to one another? Here it says, we will be overwhelmed with gladness, as in harvest time, or when dividing the spoils of war. Okay? Just hold that for a second. Just hold that idea. Because most of us aren't actively participating in agricultural society where harvest time really hits us with the meaning I think it would others. Uh, and most of you haven't been at the end of a battle where you went and gathered up all the enemy's stuff because they're dead. Right, So you haven't really got to experience those emotions, and you may be struggling to connect to them at this moment, okay? Uh, but we have help. There's, there's more description, okay? So that's kind of the, maybe that's the big idea, but here, what does that even mean? Okay, verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. What is that? What's he talking about? Well, they're... I'm not trying to rhyme here. The Bible did it, okay? There was a guy named Gideon at the Battle of Midian, all right? That's it. There's no more Gideon words that are going to rhyme, I think, okay? So what is, what, what's he talking about? Okay, well, he's trying to get you to understand here what's going on. He's going to break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, at, as at the Battle of Midian. How do you do it at the Battle of Midian? What, what are the details there that are pertinent here, okay? Well, if you know the story of Gideon, you know that Gideon... You know, first of all, he's a guy nobody would have expected God would use. He didn't expect God would use him, didn't really want to be used by God, but God grabs him and says, you're my guy, right? And then he's able to raise up a halfway decent force of soldiers to go and try to fight this giant army of Midian, and God says to him, hey, man, you got too many guys. And Gideon's like, well, actually, they already outnumber us by a lot, Lord, I'm not sure what you mean. He's like, well, you're just going to have to trust me. So he keeps whittling them down by different ways, and by the end of it, we end up with Gideon and 300 guys going against tens of thousands of these Midian soldiers. And what does that show? Well, what is, what's happening there? Well, again, it's, a, it's another one of these places throughout the Old Testament where God is showing his hand, where he's helping us understand the way things work. He's going to break, what's he talking about? He talks about breaking the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, that oppressive weight of the enemy, he's going to do it like he did at the Battle of Midian. Basically what God did by paring down Gideon's army to just 300 guys was showed them, this is not going to be done in your strength. I'm going to do it. And God does the whole thing in such a way where it had nothing to do with the might of 300 swords in the guy's hand. It wasn't even that he, you know, juiced them up with Holy Spirit power to make them super guys that ran around like ninjas and took out the whole Midian army. It wasn't even like that. God did things in that battle so unexplainable, so absolutely out of the norm of how people would have thought warfare would go, that there was only one conclusion you could come to at the end of the Battle of Midian. 
God was with us, God was for us, and God won this thing. Okay? Like that is what God's going to do as he brings this great light in. Okay, but who is that enemy? What, what enemy are we talking about now? Because as far as I know, the Midianites are not waiting outside on, on Elm Avenue to fight us at the end of the service, right? So who, who are we talking about now? <clears throat> well, it's, it's sin. <laughs> it's the selfishness that comes along with sin and all the implications that flow from that. And that really affects how we relate to one another. It gets better. Verse 5. What does verse 5 say? It's a, it's a weird verse, right? As we were reading through, it's like, okay, yeah, it's kind of Christmassy. It's talking about light. And then we get to, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. It's like, whoa. <laughs> like, you know, hymns, advent, we got the lights and boom, cloaks with blood and fire, right? What happened, Isaiah? <laughs> Okay, it, it does actually go together. He's, his train of thought, we just got to sync up with him. It's not his fault. He's right, okay? What is it? When we get a glimpse of the true light of Christ and his gospel, we can burn our implements of war with one another. That's what it's saying. The boots you need to fight, the cloak you were wearing that's now all rolled up in blood from the battle, you can take that and you can chuck it on the fire. When you get a glimpse of this true light that's being talked about here, okay? But why? How? What is, what is that? How do we get, why does that true light mean I can burn all my war implements? Okay? Let's go back to verse 3. We'll read it again. Like, hey man, we keep going back and forth. I know, but we have to, to get this. This is so important. This is beautiful. Okay, verse 3 again. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The gladness of harvest, as men rejoice as they divide the spoil. Again, okay, I said, we're going to maybe struggle with that, okay? Most of us are not collecting wheat during the week, and uh, we haven't, you know, split up the <clears throat> war implements of our enemies and their coin bags and whatever, so here's the deal. What is, what, is, what is the picture really being painted here? All right, I'm going to domesticate it a little bit for us, I hope. Our problem, oftentimes, is that we imagine the grace of God and all the good gifts that it brings, like a slow dripping shower head. And if we want to stand under it, there's, there's no room for anybody else. Right? We imagine the grace of God as if it's, it's there, and I can get to it, but it's, it's just that little drip that comes out of the shower when the handle's busted, right? And if, if I'm going to get under that and get, get wet at all, get some of that on me, I'm, there's, there's no room for anybody else. But friends, friends, Jesus revealed <laughs> that the grace of God is like a soaking thunderstorm or a raging waterfall. It pours upon us with such force and volume that we could never catch it all ourselves, the, this light that Isaiah is talking about, he changed the way we see the grace and the good gifts of God, right? To truly, truly experiencing the grace of Christ, it takes us from a scarcity mentality where we feel that we need to hoard and defend the little bit of good in our lives 
to a surplus mentality where we almost frantically want to invite people to stand under this divine deluge with us. What are we talking about? We're talking about peace with others. How does this light of Christ, the one given to uh, the, that area of Galilee, right? The one, and don't you see the gospel in that? The ones that got whooped the worst in the north, the, one, the place that was ravaged the worst, the place that was the darkest is the place that was ready to receive the light. When it came, come on now. Man, this is soaked in the gospel. And, and what, here's, what we're, here's what I'm saying. We're talking about how pe- we can have peace with others. Part of our problem is we have this we have this wartime, competitive, scarcity mentality often, right? And it's like for us, somehow, it's, it's like we conceptualize the grace of God as just that, just that little drip. But what he's saying here is when the people who walk in darkness, when they see a great light, those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What's going to happen when the light of Christ shines on them? What's it going to change about their perspective? What it's going to mean is they're going to start to be able to it says, you shall increase in your gladness. They'll be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What are you talking about, man? What do you mean shower drip, and what do you mean thunderstorm and waterfall? I'm not catching it yet. Harvest time, dividing the spoil at harvest time, when all the stuff is ready. Man, people, you'd be surrounded by all the food or whatever it is, the thing. You've got plenty. There's tons You don't have a scarcity mentality. You have a surplus mentality. You're swimming in whatever it is, the the product, the crop, right? When you're dividing the spoil of the enemy, it's it's not like when you were fighting and you're worried, are we going to have enough resources to get through this fight? When the other enemy's destroyed and everybody's out there just picking up stuff off the ground, it's like, hey, this is awesome. I found five helmets. You want one? Hey, look, I got more coins than I can carry. You want one? You go from a scarcity mentality to a surplus mentality, but it's all framed in the reference of the grace and the goodness of God. The good things that God brings, the good things that his grace brings into our life, he's not going to run out. You're not going to run out. And you don't have to keep hoarding, and you don't have to keep trying to make sure you're going to have enough for you. And and what does that do? What does that mentality do? It keeps you selfish. It keeps you self-focused. It keeps you thinking about your needs all the time as opposed to focusing on meeting the needs of others. Amen. (laughs) And so what are these good things, right? Because Christ didn't come to uh, make sure we have enough wheat and, you know, the spoils of war. Those are analogies. What are these good things that the grace of God brings? Well, there's too many to mention, okay? But just because... For some way to narrow it down, the good things that God's grace brings, we'll use kind of the traditional Advent focus to name a few. Um, some of you may do an Advent candle wreath you know, deal, and, and that's awesome, and that's part of how the tradition can keep our minds focused on what it should be. But there's it, traditionally people <clears throat> think of like four elements of, of Advent, Advent each week, right? So it's love, joy, hope and peace. So let's look at those, right? What am I talking about? This light of Christ, the grace of God. What does it reveal to us? What does it make? What, what are the things that, it, that the, the revelation of Christ makes so abundant 
right? That it's more like standing under Niagara Falls than it is a little drippy showerhead, right? Where it's, it's so much that it takes us from feeling like we need to grab what little bit we can get and hold it for ourselves and get to the point where it's like, man, if I, if I, don't, if I don't shove some of this to some other people and give it away, I'm going to drown in it. It's so much, and it's so good. Amen. Well, at least these four things and a ton more, but Love, joy, hope, and peace. Well, is that real? I, are those just n- nice words that we like to say around Christmas time? Or is, does the Bible really give us this idea that the revelation of Christ opens up for us the possibility of seeing that we have these things in such abundance through him that there's plenty to share and that that would affect the way our hearts are positioned towards others, strangers, but also those right next to us in our families, Right? the closest and, and the most random people in our sphere of influence. And are these important for that? Well, let's, the first one is love. I mean, do, do we all understand that there's a base need for every human to be loved? I think we understand that about ourselves, right? And what does Jesus do with that? Well, Jesus shows us that we are. <laughs> we are loved, right? And when you really, when the, when the light of the revelation of Christ begins to pour over you and you understand what God's love is for you and you understand that it's, we, we don't have a God that just said he loves you in, in kind of a, a, a pleasant way to placate you, but we have a, we have a God who, 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and then gives us an implication that ties it into exactly what we're saying today, which is, if he did that, then we ought to lay down our lives for one another, Right? The grace of God, it, it doesn't ever just hit us and, and only change us on a personal level. It also always has implications that, that pour then outwards from us. God doesn't ever just, just give us a little bit so that we can feel okay, man. He's always pouring into us enough that we can pour out as well. We all need to be loved, and we are. You are. <laughs> 1 John 3.16 shows us that. John 3.16 shows us that. And, and so many more, right? Um, the love of God is, is made plain to us, and it's made plainest. It's most vibrantly described and displayed by the life and the words and the sacrifice of Christ. If you're loved that much, here's, here's the basic question. If you're loved that much, and as you, more and more as your heart and mind are conformed to, to understanding what, what Christ doing in dying in your place and rising from the grave, what that communicates about the love of God for you, the more that that fills you, the question is then, do you, do you realize, do you, can you perceive that you don't, you don't need to try to hold on to, you don't have to be a scavenger, man, trying to find scraps to hold on to of love, man. You, you got more than you could ever possibly give away. What does that change about our position towards others, and whether we're, we feel we're at peace with them or we're at competition with them. What did he say? Didn't he say you can burn your boots and your blood-filled, blood-rolled cloaks? He sure did. What does that mean? It means this. <laughs> You're not in competition with the person sitting around you for love. You're not in competition with the people in your house for love. You're not in competition with the people at work or at school or wherever you are. There is no competition because you, there is an infinite supply 
of these good things coming from God. And I realize that's hard to conceptualize, but we already saw that it's true. He belabored the point in verses 6 and 7. It's never-ending, and it's eternal. All these good things that are a result of God's grace, we're not going to run it out. So drink deep. Drink until you don't feel like you can drink anymore, and then start looking around and offering it to others. So we love, okay? We're just talking about, we're just talking, now we're just talking about the good things that come with the grace of God, revealed in the light of Christ, okay? Joy. We're using Advent, the traditional four weeks of Advent, as a base point for talking about the good things of God and how when we realize there's an infinite supply of that coming from him, that we, we can give it away. We can be peacemakers with others. We don't have to feel like we're in competition with them. There is no reason for us to, feel at odds with others. We can truly have, truly have peace. Joy. Philippians 4, 4 through 6. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, with prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Right? Amen. What does that mean? Well, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, in case you didn't hear me, Rejoice. What does this mean? Does this mean the Bible uh, forbids us from feeling emotions other than pure elation at all times? Is that what that means? I've heard sometimes we accidentally talk about it like that, and we got to be careful, right? Because God is perfect, and he feels sadness, and he feels anger, and a whole range of emotions, and we're made in his image, okay? So that's all right. But there's when we talk about the joy of the Lord, we talk about rejoicing, there's it, it's, it's a baseline part of our existence that, that sits underneath and is deeper than, than the emotions we have that are affected by circumstance. You understand that, right? You can be angry and still there be an element of rejoicing in you, right? You can be angry at a circumstance that's right in front of you and processing that and dealing with that and, you know, asking for God's help not to sin in that anger. Amen. I know none of you struggle with that. I do have to pray about that sometimes. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. But we can rejoice in the Lord always. I, I just, I don't believe the scriptures would say that if it wasn't true. It says we don't have to be anxious about anything. Okay. If that's true, there's an infinite supply of that kind of goodness as a result of the grace of God. Boy, Man, that's something I want to share with people because I know a whole bunch of people, it doesn't seem like they've been able to rejoice in the Lord for a long time and it seems like they're anxious about a lot of things. And you know what? I don't don't want to see them as my enemy because of that. I want to see them as somebody that I'd like to share this goodness and this grace with. Come drink some of this deluge with me, man. There's plenty. Amen. Joy, love, joy, hope. Hope is, does the grace of God revealed in the light of Christ provide enough hope to go around? Should we have hope and, and should we feel that we can share hope with others? Or should we be in a posture of feeling like, man, I, I, need, I need to hold what I got for me? Well, Romans 5 goes so far as to say we don't only hope, we don't only rejoice, we don't only exalt, some of your translations will say, in our tribulation, but also 
or in our salvation, but also in our tribulation. We don't only celebrate our salvation, but also our tribulation. Why? Because our tribulation gives way to perseverance. That perseverance develops character, and that character character turns into hope, and the hope of God will not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in us. In case you're worried about, you know, me adding this kind of rain versus shower head idea into this, you're like, well, I don't really see that in those verses, man. Just We go through the whole scriptures. The grace of God and the goodness of God is oftentimes referred to as God is trying to get down and talk baby language to us and use human language to describe the greatness of his grace being poured out on us. It's often referred to like it's, it's a liquid being poured from heaven and just soak all over us, okay? So we're safe. We're in bounds, all right? Amen. And it's like that. The love of God has been poured out in us, so that hope will not disappoint. Where does that hope come from? I'm going to reverse engineer the scripture for you. Where does that hope come from? It's, it's a hope that comes from character that because I've been through some stuff. What does that mean? Well, that's the perseverance. It's persevering by the grace of God with the strength of God that creates character in me and allows me to look at situations with a hopeful lens where I'm not just battered about by whatever difficult thing is now coming against me. I'm not battered about by, by false doctrines and all of that, but I've, I've walked with Jesus. I've seen his faithfulness, and now I can stand with a galvanized character and a hope that's real. And when you've got that, and you've got it in abundance, friends, I'm trying to, I'm trying to provoke your heart here today. I'm trying to provoke your heart to be, to, to be thinking about how convinced you are like to the depth of your being of the love of God for you. How convinced you are to the depth of your being of the, the, the rightness in rejoicing and having, being full of joy. To, I'm trying to provoke your heart to think about how much hope rests there. And is it, is it in proper proportion to how much of these things are pouring down from God upon us? I mean, some of this, is some, some of what we do with our rationalizing and our our scattered focus and our refusal to take God at his word sometimes and trust his promises is it's it's like we put up umbrellas to keep we keep all that good grace water off of us <laughs> you know or, or we run from the waterfall we run we run we try to find shelter from that that rainstorm that's showering God's good things on us the last I'm going to give you is peace Philippians 4 7 says in the peace of God this follows up what we were just reading in 4, 4 through 6, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, some translations will say comprehension, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus provides the path. He is the way to having such a surplus of these good things that we go from hoarding them to giving them away freely. And if that's our position, if that's our posture in the world, I am so overwhelmed with the grace and the goodness of God. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't, I don't know if I am. And okay, okay, I hear you, but I love you, and let me say something hard to you. If that's true, if that's how you feel today, is it because God's word is not true and the availability of this deluge of divine grace is not real, or is it because your umbrella's up in some way? I said I love you before I said that, right? Let me say it again. I love you, and I realize this is hard, and there's hard things going on right now in life. But I'm also saying that when the light of Christ shows up into a dark and ravaged 
Israel or your life, (laughs) it changes everything. It can change everything. How do we how do we get there? If if we're in if we're in the way, if we're not experiencing this the fullness, this overflow that changes our posture towards others, where we're not in competition with them, but we're we're like people all celebrating together at harvest time. There's so much here. I, I can keep giving and giving and giving. We're splitting the spoils of war. There's, there's so much here. We can't carry it all. I can't do it. Let me find some more people to give to. How do we get there? Well, in Philippians 2, Paul helps us at least see, see the way there. This is Philippians 2. Therefore, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What else? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And here's what I'm trying to show you today. God does not put things on you like... Are you... Do you hear that? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. How are we doing with that today? How's our track record on doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit? Anybody in here hit that today? In the last hour? No, right? Like that's the constant rub. That's the fight of the sin nature still alive within us that daily should be being slain and put to death, but the, the, the fullness of that sanctifying process won't be done until we're in glory, right? So that fight is on. And, and this whole idea of, you know, burning our battle boots and our, our blood-soaked cloaks, that, that is, we got to keep in mind here, there is still a battle, it's just not with flesh and blood, right? The peace of God, the light of Christ allows us to, in the way we see each other, to be givers, and to walk in love, and to be peacemakers, and to be joy sharers. There is still a fight, right? You still need boots, but they're spiritual. (laughs) You still need a cloak, and you still need a sword, but that's to do battle with the, the evil one, and all of his stuff, right? But how do we do that? Jesus is not asking us to do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, just because well, here, I'm Jesus, I'm king, right? The, the government rests on my shoulders, so just, just do it because I'm telling you to. No, man. He gives you everything you need to be able to actually have a shot at walking that out. And I don't mean you're going to be perfect at it, but I mean let's get better than we are right now, right? That's sanctification. Tomorrow I want to be better at being so full of the good things that come as the result of the grace of God that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm in competition with you for them. And so I just, want to, I just want to throw them at you and give them to you rather than isolate into myself and, and feel like i got to hoard them for me. And that's going to affect my behavior. It's going to affect the way I treat you. It's going to affect the way I allocate time, talent, and treasure in the world. Right? Don't do that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. That's a good spot to say amen, Love City Church, and you missed it. That was just scripture right there. It's a good one, though. Do not merely look out for your own... Per- oh, he's not done yet. <laughs> Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whoo! What is all this about? Friends, as you conceptualize all that Jesus does, all that he affects, that he allows us and gives us the opportunity to have peace with God and peace with ourselves, and now we're talking about peace with others. The idea of how he does that, I think, is, it's, it's revealed to us in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. It's not pie in the sky. It's not just behavior modification. It's not just laying law on you and, and trying to force you to white knuckle somehow, fight your, the, the ingrained fleshly temptation for you to be selfish. That's not it. But when you are, <laughs> look, man, if you're starving and someone throws a, a, a little piece of fudge at you, man, you're going to gnaw on that thing like a savage, right? But if you just ate the whole pan of grandma's fudge and someone throws that piece of fudge at you, you're going to be more likely to be like, hey, anybody want some fudge? Now, I realize I just used grandma's fudge to illustrate an incredibly deep spiritual point. And that may seem a little <clears throat> uh, basic, but, I mean, isn't that what God's doing throughout the scriptures? Taking these giant, big ideas and trying to distill them down to us to a place where we actually go, oh, okay. I'll grab that. I can believe that. And I can walk in light of that. The key that I wanted you to hear is verse 7, what I read you here out of Philippians. It says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. That's the part that's hard for us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. How did Christ, how, did he, how, did, how was it safe for him to empty himself? Because friends, he, he understands everything he was full of, that love, joy, peace, and hope that he emptied himself of in order to, to give it to us, he, he knew the source, and he knew the source wasn't running out. And, and, and he was going to be filled back up again. St. Augustine said it this way, you are filled and you are empty. Fill your empty neighbor from your fullness so that your emptiness may be filled from God's fullness. May it be so. For us, friends. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you that Isaiah <laughs> wrote 66 chapters, 700 years before you were born in Bethlehem, Lord. Thank you for what that shows us about how little of a shot there is that all of this is coincidence. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the good word contained in these seven verses. Thank you, Lord, that you show us that when we move from that dark place of, of feeling like we're just living in self-preservation because maybe we're just relying on the resources we feel like we can gather or what we can summon from our own sense of inner strength, but thank you when the light of Christ arrives, when the Holy One, 
shows up, when we be, behold his glory, <laughs> and we really intently look and we let it begin to form and shape our vision and the way we see ourselves and the way we see others, thank you, Lord, that we, we begin to understand that we are free to be generous. We're free to be generous in all ways. That, with, that we are so loved we, we can afford to love freely. That we have so much hope that we can afford to give it away. That we have so much joy there's plenty to share. And that we have peace and it surpasses understanding and it doesn't get shook when there's difficulty around us because Christ is the eternal one and the government, his kingdom, it rests upon his shoulders and it's not going to fall and he's not going to fail and that nothing passes through his hands that he will not work for our good. Help us to trust, Lord. As we see Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus came, that's a promise made and then we see the promise fulfilled. Lord, help us. In our life today, right now, with everything that we're struggling through, with everything that stands in the way of us walking in the fullness of everything we saw today, all those things that are trying to stop us, Lord, may we trust that every promise you've made will be fulfilled. And help us to remember that oftentimes, if not most of the time, you fulfill promises in ways we wouldn't have seen coming. Lord, humble us before you. Thank you for all the humbling you've done. We rest in the palm of your hand. Please continue to shape and mold us as the good father and faithful potter that you are. We need you, Lord, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.